Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Kevin Gary. I'm a professor and chair at the University of Houston. And today we will be chatting with Stuart Johnson, a physician at Heinz VA Hospital and professor of medicine at Loyola University. Dr. Johnson's main research interest and focus has involved the epidemiology and pathogenesis of C. diff infection. Today's episode is part of the ASHP Advantage podcast series, Engaging the Experts, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners. Stu, it's great to have you here. It's fun to have this talk with you. Thank you. This episode is supported by an educational grant from Merck. This podcast is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started talking about today's topic, C. diff infection. Stu, you've been a physician scientist for many years, impacting patient lives and helping to set standards for the IDSA Shea C. diff treatment guidelines. Your clinic is legendary. Essentially, you've impacted probably thousands of lives of patients with C. diff infection. So you have a super unique perspective in this world because you've seen it all, essentially. How has C. diff evolved over time? What's changed? Can you kind of bring us up to speed of what's up with C. diff infection? Uh, Sure. Thank you, Kevin. First of all, as you know, there's been a major shift away from use of metronidazole in treating C. diff. But if you go back to the 1995 Shea position paper on CDI, which was the first position paper recommendations that were published uh, by uh, Shea, metronidazole or vancomycin were recommended for 10 days. And interesting, the metronidazole was maybe preferred and this was mainly out of concern that vancomycin resistance might emerge in C. difficile, similar to other enteric pathogens such as the enterococcus. By 2010, the SHEA and IDSA together published guidelines, and the treatment recommendations suggested that vancomycin was the drug of choice for severe disease, and the length of treatment recommendation was extended from 10 to 14 days primarily out of concern for data showing a slow response to metronidazole. And again, there were data showing that uh, vancomycin was superior to metronidazole for severe disease, but not mild to moderate disease. And then by 2018, Shea and IDSA updated the guidelines and the treatment recommendations now recommended either vancomycin or fidaxomycin as the drug of choice. And metronidazole was only recommended when vancomycin or fidaxomycin was not available. And in that case, only for mild to moderate disease. So metronidazole really was relegated to secondary treatment, if you will, back in 2018. And then last year, IDSA Shea again published a focused treatment update incorporating new data on bezlatoximab and, and fidaxomycin. And in this updated focused guideline, we suggested that fidaxomycin be used rather than vancomycin. Now, this was a conditional recommendation that placed a high value on the beneficial effects and the safety of fidaxomycin, but its implementation really is dependent on available resources, and vancomycin remained an acceptable alternative if fidaxomycin was not available. So there's been a big shift from metronidazole to vancomycin 
to nonfidaxomycin. And these are recommendations have been based on high quality data for the most part, randomized controlled trials that have shown difference in efficacy. That's great. You know, uh, nice job getting us from 1970 to the 2020s in uh, <laughs> three minutes. Uh, great. You know, the, kind of the defining moment of metronidazole was the Telivermer study. You were lead author. And in that Telivermer study, as you know, there was a comparison of metronidazole and vancomycin that really I think put the nail in the coffin for metronidazole being a non-preferred agent. What do you think caused it? Do you have any guesses? Like it worked in the past, it's not working now. What's the rationale behind this declining response? Well, first of all, the Televimer trial was a rigorously controlled trial. And if you look back at the randomized controlled trials in the 80s and the 90s, comparing metronidazole and vancomycin, They weren't industry-sponsored or they weren't NIH-sponsored, if you will, and they were not quite as rigorous. There was really no attention paid to intention to treat, dropouts, et cetera. So they were good studies in the sense that they were randomized, but they weren't as rigorous as the more current clinical controlled trials. And that being said, I think there's still a clinical sense from most people that treat C. diff that there was a difference and that metronidazole may have been more effective in the past. But certainly by the early 2000s in my practice, it was hard to tell a difference patients uh, from the start of treatment, metronidazole to the end of treatment, and very, very slow, imperceptible response. And as soon as they stopped metronidazole, symptoms would come right back. So this was an anecdotal observation, but I think is supported by data in the literature that it just was not as effective. And, you know, exactly why that is, certainly there was a change in epidemiology. There were more severe strains of C. difficile, such as the 027 di strain. But, you know, the drug itself, when you look back, is really not ideally designed for an enteric infection. It's highly absorbed and has modest concentrations at best in the stool and may not even exceed the MIC for many C. difficile strains. So there's always been concern of MIC creep, or I believe you've published this, uh, Kevin, that strains are around that have moderately elevated MICs. And in that setting, metronidazole is probably not an effective treatment for it. So I think it's, it's probably a combination of maybe uh, changing epidemiology of C. difficile, but really the inadequacies of the drug for treating an enteric infection has kind of reared its head. That's kind of my take. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think it's neat that I think the the science is trying to catch up with the clinical practice in this case. And I think there is a, some gleanings out there of why this is happening is coming along. And I do like the resistance bend on it, as you know. As you know, obviously, the other interesting and very important part of C. diff infection is recurrence and the appreciation of we don't, we can't just stop their initial symptoms, but we have to really have a cure with kind of new definitions of cure. And so clinical trials these days use words like uh, initial clinical cure and sustained response rates. Could you better explain that? And maybe more importantly, how do we take those clinical trial terms and relate that to how we're treating our patients? Right. Well, clearly initial response to treatment is critical in evaluating any drug, of course. But recurrence after initially effective treatment has really the hall, been the hallmark of C. difficile infection. And symptomatic recurrences usually occur within a couple of weeks of stopping the, the treatment. 
So measuring the sustained response to treatment, which is usually measured at one month after the end of treatment discontinuation, has really been helpful to determine differences in efficacy of drugs, particularly when you're comparing drugs like vancomycin and fidaxomycin. Because as far as initial clinical response, there really was no difference in the randomized controlled trials. But the difference, of course, was in the follow-up period where recurrences were less frequent with fidaxomycin, hence leading to an increased sustained response for fidaxomycin over vancomycin. So I think this has been a helpful change in evaluating drugs and efficacy. And certainly our last iteration of the IDSHA guidelines, as you know, emphasize sustained response. So I, I think that you know vancomycin is still a viable option for treating C. difficile because initial response is very similar to fidaxomycin. Uh, but again, it's the differences between those two agents in particular have, have shown up in the follow-up period. Yeah, very true. So when you're thinking then of like, okay, I want to prevent a, a recurrence in a, in a high-risk patient and you're kind of reaching in your bag of tricks. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have pharmacology handy. You'll have antibiotics that reduce the risk of recurrence, fidaxomycin. You'll have bezeltoximab, an antibody that prevents recurrence. So you have those pharmacologicals. And then obviously very hot is microbial restoration. Right now, fecal microbiota transplantation with lots of other things coming. How do you distinguish between these two strategies? What makes you decide whether to go left, whether to go right? Like, What's your thinking as you're trying to decide how do I prevent a recurrence in this patient? Right. Well, first of all, I think it's important to remember that both FMT or fecal transplant and bezlatoximab, this monoclonal antibody directed against toxin B, are really adjunctive treatments. And they need to be given typically after treatment with a standard of care antibiotic, such as vancomycin or fidaxomycin. So it's symptom control first, and then these other agents have been used to decrease recurrence, which again is the the major clinical issue with C. difficile. And remember that the FMT has been used widely, but only under discretionary enforcement by the FDA for the last decade or so. And what they say is that uh, this is provided adequate consent is given, and including a statement that the use is investigational and that the stool donor and the stool are qualified by screening and testing under the discretion of a licensed healthcare practitioner. So this is variably done in the community, I would say, and the reliability of a safe and particular product, FMT product, is not there. And I think a lot of people have rushed to this and forgotten that this is still an investigational therapy. It's been remarkably effective for people with recurrency difficile disease, but its relative efficacy, I don't think is completely known. It's interesting as we speak, there is an FDA meeting to review the request by a company to get an indication for FMT. So (laughs) this is quite a momentous day. So we'll have to see how this turns out. It's a publicly open meeting I was listening in earlier today. So we'll have to see how this all plays out. But I think we can look forward to a FDA approved product in the future. So that will definitely change my practice, which I've traditionally been kind of an old timer, a drug pusher in the good sense of the word, if you will. And uh, I've really kind of 
put off FMT as kind of a last resort because I've never had the manpower or the woman power to develop a screening program, an FMT program, at least in my institution. And uh, although there have been stool banks available where you can get the product, it's not been practical. And then with the COVID epidemic and multiple other changes, these FMT products have become less and less available. We're, I think, all waiting for something that's FDA approved. So some degree of safety is included in that. But that being said, as you know, for recurrent C. difficile, treatment of recurrent C. difficile is really an art form. And if you look at the clinical trials, most of the data, good clinical data is for patients with the first recurrence, if you will. And then beyond that, it's smaller case reports, uh, inadequately compared randomized controlled trials. And it's still kind of an art form to decide what to do. And as you mentioned, I've had a clinic for years at Loyola for treating patients with recurrent C. difficile disease. And we used to give these prolonged vancomycin taper and pulses, basically weaning them off the vancomycin. And it worked. And it still works, I have to say. But when pedaxomycin became available, we've used that in more creative ways for patients with recurrent C. difficile disease. And bezlatoximab as well has been another helpful armamentarium. And exactly when to use each of these agents is still a good question. I think you, you have to remember that for a first episode, your risk of recurrence is maybe 20%, 25%. So that means that 75 to 80% patients won't recur. So you have to keep that in mind. So I don't think there's any role for FMT in particular for patients with an initial episode, maybe for first recurrence in a setting where it's looked at and it's available for doing that. And then bezlatoximab, although may have some efficacy for patients with a primary episode, it's really hard to identify those patients with a first episode and then going through the logistics and getting them set up for an infusion of this uh, drug. So I, I do think that this is both of these therapies, while well, well effective, really result in patients with uh, recurrent disease. We're struggling with this right now, exactly what to do. Every week we say, well, you know, should we continue this banco taper and pulse? Should we switch them to fedaxomycin? Should we try to give them bezlatoximab at the end of the treatment? Or God forbid, should we give them un-FDA approved FMT? <laughs> so this is kind of what we go through on a weekly basis. That's good insight. One of my mentors here in Houston, Herbert DuPont, one of his famous quotes were, we've learned a lot about C. diff. We just don't really know how to diagnose it or treat it very well. And yes. I, think, I think that's still uh, emerging. I think we've both been in this game a while. What excites you today about the future of C. diff? What are you uh, most excited about? Where do you think the most intrigue is going to come from? What's pushing your buttons? Well, I do think that this... Uh microbial replacement treatment or biotherapeutics is really something that should be developed because in my mind, the basic disease process here or the, the pathogenesis is this disrupted microbiome and patients with recurrent disease, particularly multiple recurrences have fairly profound dysbiosis, meaning that their colonization resistance is, is really nil. And that's what protects most of us from C. difficile. As you know, that uh, we're all likely exposed periodically to these spores, but we're not all on antibiotics. And there are other factors as well. But I, I do think addressing this dysbiosis 
is going to be important. And it is interesting today that the FDA is meeting to review one of these products for licensure. So we'll have to see what happens. There's at least one other therapy, microbial therapy, that's on track to getting, uh, you know, looking for an FDA indication as well. And then not to discount this non-toxigenic C. difficile therapy. As you know, Dale Gerding is my long-term mentor and colleague who's, who's developed this. It went through phase one trial and a very interesting phase two trial, but the company that sponsored it was bought by another company. So this has been the patent was taken back and it's been looked at by another company that is hopefully going to bring this forward in a phase three trial. The idea here is that a non-toxigenic version of C. difficile when given to patients who are at risk, and this has been studied particularly in patients with first episode of C. diff after treatment, kind of like bezlatoximab or given or EFMT. If you intentionally colonize them with this uh, non-toxigenic strain, you may well protect them from disease. So that's kind of what excites me. Will there be a vaccine developed for C. diff? Well, this is a good question. The Sanofi trial was a complete bust. In fact, statistically, the patients that got placebo had less risk for C. diff than the people with the vaccine. It wasn't statistically significant, but there was really no hint of efficacy. Now, the Pfizer vaccine, they just reported in, in the top line results, and they missed their primary indication, but I, I wouldn't count that out yet. I mean, if you read between the lines, there might be evidence of efficacy of this vaccine, and we haven't seen the peer-reviewed publication, or they certainly haven't gone for an FDA indication. So that's a possibility in the future. Then one other thing that I think is exciting to me, and I think that Appropriate antibiotic stewardship efforts that specifically address CDI risk may actually be helpful. And, and people picked up on the issue that this epidemic O27BI strain was highly resistant to fluoroquinolones and that they probably facilitated epidemics in many of the hospitals across this country and Canada and the UK. And restricting fluoroquinolones in that setting was very helpful. But there's a whole world out there that doesn't really quite get it as far as the risk of C. diff with antibiotics. And, and I think in the community setting, I, I think about dentistry and the very common use of clindamycin in people that are quote-unquote penicillin allergic is amazing to me. And Andrew Skinner works with me in clinic now for the last three years. We just kind of look at each other and we ask this question. So what antibiotic did you take to get this? And Clinda is the answer? Clindamycin, oh my gosh. And for these communities associated cases, not all of them, but I mean, it's such a common story and people that had, well, a dental abscess or, or some reason, and they were given clindamycin instead of penicillin because penicillin allergy. Okay. You have just empowered thousands of ID stewardship clinicians around the country. <laughs> Congratulations. Stop the clinda. <laughs> Stop the clindamycin. That's great. Okay. Well, Stu, that's unfortunately all the time we have for today. Thank you, Dr. Johnson, for joining us. It's a pleasure to have this conversation with you as always. Thank you for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Please join us on December 5th for the symposium presentation, both live at the Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas from 1130 to 1 Pacific time, and virtually if you're not attending the mid-year clinical meeting. Stu's protege, Andrew Skinner, will be uh, discussing C. diff along with one of my protégés, Anne Gonzalez-Luna. So it's going to be a terrific 
terrific mid-year meeting and we'll be going out for beers afterwards. So that will make it even better. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to subscribe to ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thanks again, Stu. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.